I know there's some speculation about whether or not there's going to be a sequel. Oh, Maybe. dude, they're going to do it. They're going to well, do it. It's going to be like cocaine, mama bear, baby bear, older brother bear. Who the hell knows? But you know it. Cocaine bear too. Too coke, too bear. Too fast. <laughs> too furious. <laughs> everyone and welcome to plot devices episode 45 it's my favorite number so therefore this will be my favorite show my name is brandon king i am one of your co-hosts for today alongside uh my cocaine bear talking co-host for later in the show uh noah you're about to go on a fantastic trip after this i'm basically the last human being you're gonna talk to beforehand are you excited how are you feeling today I'm feeling stoked, Brandon. Um, no cocaine was actually ingested prior to the recording of this pod, but post-recording, <gasps> I'm so like a narc. No. You know what? Say no always, okay? I, I mean, only narc, only time I want a narc after me is if he looks like Pedro Pascal, baby. <laughs> Anyways, this is a show where we talk about entertainment news, movie release reviews. There's so much that me and Brandon are going to get into after I ask this significant question. Brandon, my favorite number is 17. Why is yours 45? I'll actually say it for a very stupid reason. I was a Yu-Gi-Oh kid. Still, I'm flattering with Inga Nerd. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and the Blue-Eyes Ultimate Dragon, which was the coolest card when you were, you know, when we were all very, very youngins in the Yu-Gi-Oh fandom, had 4,500 attack points. And I don't know why, but my little kid brain accustomed the art of the dragon with the purple card and the 45 number as being like, this is the definition of cool. And so as I grew up, every time I saw 45, I had that image in my head. And it just kind of, it was one of those like pure dopamine moments of like, this is good. I don't exactly know why it's good, but it's good. Uh, and then Donald Trump became 45. So no, Oh, no, yeah. no. Hey, well, up until that last mark, I think that's a wonderful reason, Brandon. It's got some personal attachment to you. You know, on my side of things, when I think about 17, I just go. Um, 17 again? There's the movie 17 again, which I'm like, oh, don't tell me Zac Efron is the reason why I love this number. You got Fetty Wap's um, 1738 that just goes on repeat when I was in high school. And now whenever I get a total, whether it be like at a Bookman's or grocery store and it says 1738, I just think to myself, did he know that this was just such a common occurring sale price point? Who knows where his mind is? This isn't a Fetty Wap coverage show. This is Plot Devices. Brandon, let's get right into today's news. Well, it's funny because, you know, I always put those stupid subtitles at the end of the episode, and I'm definitely going to put Cocaine Bear Review and Our Favorite Numbers are Garbage. Um, but, you know, it is a garbage number, and specifically pertaining to garbage is our first topic, because I tie everything in. I'm a fine co-host. Funko Pop. We all know Funko Noah, do you collect Funko Pops? Yes, I do collect Funko Pops. I have my fair share of them as well. I'm sure that many of us in the nerd film TV whatchamacallit spaces that we inhabit. You know, we have our geeky passions and Funko Pops are a good way to express it. Until you get to the story, uh, Funko Pops are dumping about $30 million worth of products into landfills uh, in the next year or so. There's a new report out from NPR. Millions of dollars of Funko Pop collectibles will be tossed down to landfills after the company reported an excessive material. Uh, while the company posted about a billion dollars in net sales during uh, 2021, the collective market as a whole has gone up nearly 25% uh, during the pandemic, and specifically in 2022. Uh, Funko has cited the cost of housing that excess uh, that excess merchandise as a reason for the disposal. Basically, they just can't store it for cheaper than it would be to just destroy it or get rid of it. For context, the average Funko Pop weighs around 10 ounces and is made mostly of vinyl plastic. And for context, that usually takes around 450 years at the least to fully decompose. Uh, and again, that's judging on a spectrum based on where the where the pops will end up, what the landfill composition is, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some ideas that have been floated around in the meantime that have included uh, pops being donated to summer camps as kind of artistic canvases for kids to work on and experiment with, uh, selling them to smaller outlets for just kind of price like comic shops, which might need a revenue boost. Uh, Noah, as fans of this as we all are, I feel like in the geek landscape, and the collectible landscape as a whole, we don't necessarily talk about what happens to those collectibles that don't find a home. Uh, do you like these ideas? And do you think that Funko is making the right choice and basically saying, we're getting rid of all these instead of figuring out what immediately to do with them? Hell no. This is such a terrible move from Funko. It makes me, as a seasoned collector nowadays, I believe my first Funko Pop 
figure was from like the evolved video game where I was actually gifted one. And from that sparked this nerve to actually go out and seek the characters that I found so lovable from my beloved franchises. But the rule for me, I think I've said it on the show once before is I can't get two from the same Funko line because otherwise all of my money would be gone. The exception to that is of course the directors, you know, I had to have from the director series, at least Jason Bloom, as well as Jordan Peele. We're holding on the Ava DuVernay one. But secondly, is the exception is Overwatch. Of course, I need Roadhog and I need Sombra. But moving on. That being said, I am well into my momentum when it comes to collecting these things. I do like to seek them out when they're around, but I'm not actually like following, you know, the <laughs> the dotted line to figure out where these highly prized ones can be found. But some people are. And there are friends that I have in my circles who don't collect Funko Pops because that's not their thing. Guess what your next birthday, Christmas, insert holiday gift is from me? A Funko Pop. Like, I will start that flame for you the same way it ignited for myself. Then we come onto this news and we learn of how much waste this product, this company is having to now dump because they have like offset their inventory costs. And now it like it's more expensive to hold on to these toys pieces of plastic than it is to hope, I don't know, for their sell. You know, at this point, I, I wanted to point out, point this out as a topic because I just find it really gross for a company of this size, of this, I don't know what the word is. Like, I can't say like stature because I can't be like Funko's in such good standing in the public eye. They make cute products and I was excited to keep on buying from them. I like even their pen series. And so I know my points have been so far that, you know, I am a fan of the Funko products, but I think that this story sounds so terrible, especially when you know the other routes that they can go when providing it to like underprivileged communities who would look at something like a toy in a whole nother way than somebody who is just collecting them to have them. It's, it's wild. I really hope that they make the better PR move and not go through with this dumping, but um, there's a complete other microphone we can pass to the environmentalist of the pod who can talk about like why this is just so terrible, but unfortunately we've yet to fill that role. Applications are open. Um, I, for one, am going to halt that um, collection for the time being. And I think yeah. for in perpetuity. Funny, we've talked about getting, you know, expanding the team of like film pundits and TV pundits. No, we need environmental pundits now. We need law pundits now. We we really need to start expanding into, you know, what we don't know. I did do some quick math, by the way. Uh, if you take that 10 ounce uh, stat into account, let's say they were just tossing a million pops. That's still around 625,000 pounds of plastic that is just going to go to landfills, which, as you mentioned, puts that in perspective, considering this is multiple millions worth of products. Um, I do collect pops a little bit. I admit I got first started in 2015 during the whole uh, Force Awakens merchandising boom, where I basically collected most of the main characters from that and have accumulated a few random uh, ones ever since. They're good collectibles, and that's what I'm trying to get across. But at the same time, it is also weird when you account for the collectible market as a whole, which according to the NPR piece and a couple other sources that I was able to find, it has gone up. Like since the pandemic, people have wanted more collectibles at large beyond Funko and just getting into, you know, Black Series and like, you know, um, you know, Lego collectibles. And like that whole market has been booming in the last few years. So it's weird to note that a company like Funko would go over uh, would go over their margins with this. Us adults sitting at home in those pandemic years, the quarantine years just made us realize actually Hell yeah, I want more toys. I want to surround myself with all these things that just give me the idea of fun and um can display the type of franchises that I love. So right there with your point, hell yeah, we all we all love our toys. And this toy maker, this um this producer is making such a bad call. Yes, I understand kind of the complex realities of the toy business and what that all entails, but it's also really stupid. Like when you have enough merchandise like this that you can I like a lot of these ideas that NPR was bringing up that they'd gotten from people like, yeah, donate them to summer camps. I know that, you know, maybe some of the more deluxe ones might be a bit difficult, but like as a whole, like they're good to, you know, draw on and just mark up to however you, you know, however you prefer. The comic shop idea is frankly great. Like there are so many smaller toy stores across the country, let alone across the world where Funko's operations are that could benefit from stuff like this. You know, I don't think necessarily they would just wholeheartedly donate them, but I think getting to them at a smaller price to, you know, get resale value in that could work. Um, and there's certainly just better ideas than just throwing them into a landfill, which I think is just going to make so much more hassle in the long run, so many more environmental problems in the long run. And just really kind of, I don't know how much this has been blowing up beyond just the toy sphere, because again, I really was sort of out of this until a couple hours ago when you brought it to my attention. But 
I think the more this goes about, the more it will lessen Funko's reputation amongst collectors to be like, okay, if I don't buy 20, 30, 40 of these, they're just going to be thrown out. Like that, that's not a good business model to know for an, for a society and for consumers that are becoming more ecologically friendly and more ecologically aware of their purchases. So I know this isn't necessarily like, you know, the big film news topic that we don't usually talk about, but it, it is important on a much larger scale than we realize. And all this plastic, all these toys are just going to get buried. Yeah. Speaking of which. <laughs> on to our second news story of the day, which uh, Noah so wonderfully teased over. The Buried Giant, uh, which is a book that I admit I've never read, but it's getting a pretty great benefactor for its uh, film adaptation. Uh, Guillermo del Toro and Netflix. Uh, they're staying in the stop motion uh, adaptation game after Pinocchio. Uh, an exclusive from Deadline, Del Toro's next directorial effort. So he won't just be producing this. He's going to be directing this as well. Uh, is going to be The Buried Giant, uh, based on the 2015 novel by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, who just recently actually got nominated for an Oscar for his screenplay to uh, Oliver Hermanus's Living, story Bill Nye. We did not get a chance to talk about it on the show, but I liked it enough. Um, Dennis Kelly is going to be adapting the script. Uh, Kelly, if any of you saw Matilda the Musical, he just recently adapted that as a film for Netflix as well, so he's got experience in this. The story, for those of you unaware, as I was, follows a couple in post-Arthurian England. Uh, no one in this society remembers long-term memories, but then the couple decide to go on this journey to a nearby village after they both faintly recall seeing a child in their dreams, but they don't really believe it existed. But there's a faint familiarity to them, so they're trying to figure out what essentially is going on. Uh, no release date has been set for this. Obviously, Del Toro has about a dozen, two dozen other products in the works, but this seems to be what he's uh, dividing a lot of his attention to. Noah, bigger question. Will this take more than a decade to make like Pinocchio did? And whether or not it does... Are you intrigued by a premise such as this based on a novel from a Nobel Prize winning author with someone like Del Toro and Kelly at the mix? In my cauldron of the next GDT project, this is kind of a recipe for success. I think it is absolutely a story that he can transform and reimagine to fit his take. Like, I wonder if this will be directly the buried giant or Guillermo del Toro's the buried giant. How much can he craft his own sense of world building and storytelling within this novel that is already super awarded. We saw him do it earlier last year with Pinocchio. And if you've gotten to our review, you'll hear just all of the praise Brandon and I throw towards Pinocchio and the additional praise I throw on top of a wooden world, I think is what it's called. And that's the behind the scenes project piece that was released on Netflix about the building of Pinocchio. Guillermo del Toro in the stop motion space is impressive. It is, you know, there is limitless potential to what he can do. And so this is exciting news. I think that it's not a children's tale he's adapting now from what I know, right? So I'm not actually sure if The Barry Giant is supposed to be a, a work of fiction towards a younger audience. But based off the premise you've shared, it sounds dark and it sounds heavy. I don't doubt that Guillermo del Toro can take that on and turn it into something magical. So this is... This is the next project I think we have to watch with this director in mind. It's something exciting. It's new. And it opens the door, hopefully for other directors to be like, hey, I'm going to get into the stop motion space too. Like, actually, I'm going to do live action and then some to tell these wondrous stories. The Hollywood Reporter kind of furthered on this. Uh, there was a statement from Scott Stuber from Netflix uh, who called Del Toro, quote, a visionary filmmaker, master of his craft. We couldn't be more proud of the prestigious recognition for his Pinocchio. And we're pleased to continue working with him uh, for Netflix. Del Toro himself said, because um, we were actually talking about before we taped the show about whether or not this would keep the same team as the Netflix movie. He does say in a statement, quote, continues my animation partnership with Netflix and our pursuit of stop motion. So that tells me that it not if not the entire same team, that at least some of those animators will be coming on board. And he did talk about working with Dennis Kelly as well. Um, did you watch Matilda the Musical, by the way? I didn't, Brandon. I thought it was more fun than it had any right to be. Um, and more specifically, it did that while encapsulating some pretty dark ideas, which is why I'm fascinated to know what someone like Dennis Kelly can do with the material. That sounds, you say it's dark, I say morbid. Like, this sounds really morbid and twisted, just the idea of like, forgetting all of your long-term memories, and then somehow maybe you have a child, and but even if you don't have a child, that child still feels like yours and you can't quite tell and you have no way of dealing with that. That sounds terrifying. Um, and I feel are like we, something like, oh, go ahead. Brandon, are we going to get eternal sunshine of a spotless mind? But with, yes, that, that's you know, what I'm thinking. sprinkle in a detail of, wait, I don't know who you are, but I think we both have this kid. Are, are we going to get a rival? You know, what is this going to be? 
Yeah, and and in post-Arthurian England too, which means that there's going to be kind of a period aspect to it all, like maybe uh, kind of like Green Knight, that kind of deal, maybe with the fantastical yes. elements. Um, oh boy! But yeah, like you said it yourself, like we both gushed and gushed, and we'll probably gush some more about Del Toro's Pinocchio. You know, it was in my top three of the year. It was, um, I believe, close on your list as well. And just in regards to that sense of storytelling, I love that Del Toro is doubling down on stop motion. We were talking about on our last show about How to Train Your Dragon getting a live action adaptation and how Del Toro has been working his ass off this award season, not just to promote Pinocchio, but to promote stop motion as a means of animation and as a perfectly valid acceptance in uh, as a perfectly valid stance in the world of um, uh, in the world of cinema going forward. And so I love the fact that he's doubling down on this and going, no, if Netflix wants to keep giving me millions of dollars for this, I'm going to take that and give all these really world-class animators who have something to say, the proper working and medium title with my name behind it. And so I think for him, this is really clearly something that he's passionate about. This is clearly something that passes through onto us as the audience. So yeah, consider me completely on board for this. I don't know how long it will be before we get it. I hope it's not, you know, a decade that we have to wait. Um, But yeah, if it comes in the next four or five years, yeah, sign me up. And with that being said, we are going to hop into our quick hits portion of the show. Uh, this is the portion of the show where we each take one news topic that we didn't uh, maybe have time or the interest in doing a full-blown discussion on, but we thought you guys might want to hear about it anyways. Uh, we both have about a minute, minute and a half or so on the clock, depending on how much we have to say. Noah, I will toss it over to you first. What is your quick hit for the people? Thank you so much, Brandon. Not wasting any time. We are going to go ahead and get started in my quick hit space. A three, a two, a one. Fans of the Alien franchise, I hope you're not holding your breath for the next entry in the series because they just keep coming, so you wouldn't have held it for long. The next Alien film is going to be directed. It was just announced by Fede Alvarez, who you may remember from one of my personal favorites of all time. It is Evil Dead. That is the 2013 film, and that is the one that is entirely so bloody and just... For me, remarkable piece of horror that to learn that Fede Alvarez will be stepping in for this additional film in the franchise. It is the ninth for the franchise, by the way. So, oh my gosh, let's talk about, you know, beating a dead horse. But what makes me excited is the fact that Alvarez is not stepping in only as director, but he will be penning the script. He is the screenwriter and producer for this ninth film. I can only imagine... Hold on, I said... Oh, wait, this isn't our regular segment. I can't say hold on. (laughs) Okay, keep it moving. Um, new Alien film. Uh, I think it's going to follow the prequel series. We started with Prometheus and then Alien Covenant. So I think he's making the next one. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be exciting. There are cast details, but I'm not that hyped about them. I'm more hyped about the director, the screenwriter. It's going to be a blast. Time. Brandon, over to you. I feel like very quickly we should just mention some of those new cast members. Uh, Isabella Merced's going to be in there. Kaylee Spaney is going to be in there. So it's a very eclectic cast, and you can go look it up yourself. But uh, yeah, it's, it seems like Fade is really taking this in a really weird direction. Noah Hawley from Legion was originally attached at one point. So whatever Fade can do with it, I'm very curious. And I know that Ridley brings on new directors that he really, truly believes in. So yeah, hopefully this is great for the fans. On to my quick hit in the meantime, in three, two... So, in my newfound niche of Pokemon-related quick hits, because that apparently seems to be what I'm doing now, uh, do you remember Detective Pikachu, the live-action Pokemon adaptation with uh, Ryan Reynolds, Justice Smith, uh, made, over, made over 400 million worldwide, got better-than-expected reviews, including from yours truly? Uh, for a while, it seemed like we were never going to get a sequel. Uh, Justice Smith even said to, quote, bury our hopes for it, and that made me very sad. But now that might change. Uh, this comes from Justin Kroll at Deadline earlier this week. Jonathan Crisell, best known for co-creating Portlandia, he is set to direct the project with a script from Kings of Summer writer uh, Chris Gaeta. Insiders on Deadline say that Ryan Reynolds will have some role to play in the sequel, though they didn't confirm whether he would be returning as the titular character or not. This also comes as Legendary has switched distribution over to Sony, minus Dune Part 2 and Godzilla vs. Kong, so it comes in a lot of uh, studio reshuffling as well. I really liked the first one. It was better than it had any right to be, so hearing someone like Chris L on board doesn't get me super excited, but the fact that we're revisiting this world and these characters, I have to be excited for end time. Justice Smith, I'm kind of on the fence for. Where are you? Uh, I'm a big fan of his, actually. Big fan uh, of his? I, I remember seeing him in Paper Towns and going, okay, he's going to be a star someday. And he hasn't gotten there yet, but he's close. Okay, okay. I think Dominion did something for me. Wait, is that the one? Or am I thinking, yeah. what's the second well, entry? Fallen Kingdom did yes. something for me. And I thought, 
I can't judge him too hard. And then I've yet to see him in Voyeurs on Amazon Prime, but I think maybe he might be good there. And then I'm excited to see him in Dungeons and Dragons. I like him. I like that kind of goofy role they gave him for that one. So he's going to be great in Dungeons and Dragons. I have no doubt. All right. So we are covering three topics, three new releases, uh, both of us taking the reins on our own titles and then joining up together for a cover for a joint coverage on Cocaine Bear. So I will start off the reviews with Goran Stolevsky's Of an Age. I need to go through this review slowly because my God, was this a great film? This is a, this is a same sex love story kind of coming of age film that is told over a 24 hour period. You may be familiar with other entries in this category whether it be films like one that came to mind for me, Brandon, you let me know, you interject if there's one for you. But Before We Go was a film that starred Chris Evans and, ooh, her name escapes me, but they are- Was it Alice Eve? Alice Eve, exactly, yes. They miss their, I think, train at that New York, you know, station, and then they both end up spending the evening together in New York City- and kind of just form a once in a lifetime kind of connection. And I think that's the same premise here. But this time, of course, we're able to explore a um, same sex relationship. And this story is told in the summer of 1999. So it's during an age where things are still very much kept secret and things are very much kept, you know, under, uh, behind closed doors when it comes to your sexuality and your identity and how, how much of a life you can live openly, you know, based on those around you, based on the judgment that exists around you. And so when it comes to a movie like this, guiltily, I rolled my eyes before I watched this film because I just thought, you know, I'm not really preparing myself to just go into this movie and get the same like gay tragic love story that always ends up appearing on my screen. It's uh, heartbreaking. It kind of makes me like turned off to the genre. But of course, like I, there's still an inkling of hope because I think, you know, this could be a romance story that ends up like reigniting like my interest in the space. So I think about things, I think about entries that have done it well. I'm sure you've seen Heartstopper and what a magical piece of TV show that is. And like all the hard eyes, all the love that is felt. Still have it. Please don't kill me. <gasps> oh my gosh, Brandon. Oh, okay. If we get to Pride Month and you still have not seen Hoss. <laughs> I know. Okay. No, no, no. Keeping this moving, right? So yeah, keep going. Keep going. Think about Brokeback Mountain. Think about this movie, um, the German film, Firefall, Freefall, uh, even Call Me By Your Name. Um, I, I mentioned the last one last because it exists more in like this art, this art film type of space. Um, it doesn't feel like a traditional, just like romance story. Well, that's the same thing of, of an age. So the official synopsis is that it, uh, involves, like I said, the summer of 1999, there's a ballroom dancer who has to get prepared for this big, uh, conference. I'm not really sure what you call like this, the com- competitive space for this ballroom where him and his best friend are going to compete. However, he gets a phone call from her and she is waking up entirely way too hungover to be prepared to dance in the next couple hours all across the city. She's in another space, like kind of, she's still piecing her night together and the morning. So he has to figure out how can I get to her and then get to my event and compete and potentially m- you know, be all right with everything going the way it is. It's kind of a shit show. And so she and he and he decide that their best option for traveling all of this space in the shortest amount of time is calling her older brother, who's always been sort of like, kind of like on the edge of society. He's looked at as kind of like a loner and people, a lot of people don't really understand him. And so these two, these two men end up joining each other for a car ride to go pick up the sister. And so I should mention that the the main best friends, the boy and the girl, the, the boy, the main character of the story, his name is Cole. I believe it's short for Nicholas. And his name is, I believe it's Elias or Elias. My apologies for those multiple pronunciations. Uh, <laughs> and then we're talking about Ebony as well, played by Haiti Hook. And so the older brother, his name is Adam, and he's played by Tom Green. And so on this journey ride to go pick up Ebony, there's a lot of moments where Cole and Adam are able to be vague with each other in terms of what they're interested in, what their life is like, and where they want to point themselves for their future. And through those conversations, you really get the impression that Cole has a, you know, peaked interest in Adam and the type of just mindset that he has. They're both really big readers, or so you think, based off their conversations in the car. 
by the time they go pick up Ebony, it's revealed that Adam has actually had a previous lover and it was another man, which kind of throws Cole for a, you know, it, it kind of steals his breath because now he doesn't know how to regard himself. Now, in a weird way, it just feels like he's seen by this other man who, who may have the same sexual identity as him. I think in this story, you're led to believe that Cole has not lived his life openly up until this point as a gay man or as a man interested in men. And it's, it's just so unnerving and a little unsettling for a viewer to watch this because uh, whether it's the camera work, whether it's the audio cues, like you feel just as nervous as Cole does knowing that he can't really be himself because he may out himself, but uh through the process of that, you look at him and he, st- he just sticks out, right? Like he sticks out as um not like the others and Adam can see that. And that's kind of what intrigues Adam. So throughout this 24 hour journey that they all go on, it's a long car ride to and from picking up the sister. It's a late night party that speaks to, I think a lot of the, um the, truths about being young and going to a house party and some of the struggles you face, whether you, uh, whether you are introverted at the least, but now you're also gay. Now you're also just, you're not really about the party and like getting as, you know, crazy as the others around you. And it, it finds really intimate spaces throughout the film to have Adam and Cole be vulnerable with each other, leading you to really root for this type of romance. Now I mentioned the idea or like the, the truth of gay tragedy and being part of like the, the big screen gay romances that I've seen in the past, because that's what I was expecting from this film. I am proud to say that this does not follow that trope. And you actually find a lot of content at the end of the film. And I think reasons to smile, reasons to feel joy that you witness this story. And this film for me was a very emotional watch and I want to discover what lies ahead for our director Stolevsky. I was able to watch a short interview where he says this isn't an entirely autobiographical work because the events in the film are fiction, but being part of a story that takes place with like the end of high school, really focusing on where to point your life and the type of people who enter you and kind of just jolt you or enter your life and then jolt that plan he said it was affecting not only the director, but so many of the casting crew members who were just asked to place themselves again in that high school space of being young and figuring out what lies ahead for me on my life. Uh, last note is that the film does cover across 24 hours, but that is not a hundred percent of the film that you watch. So that's my only tease for you to get into theaters and check out this film. This movie gets the big, the big praise, the mark of big praise for me on my review list. I'm trying to get Brandon away from the numerical rating system. So if I had to throw a number on this, because I might have to, I kind of want to go nine and a half. (laughs) Dude, it really was so powerful and it was so moving to watch. And it was one of those that told more than just what was, it told more through what was shown rather than what was said. And that is impressive for a movie in this little artsy art house space. I didn't find myself getting bored with their long kind of static shots. I did find myself a fan of every scene following the next. So biggest praise for me, get out into theaters, experience this very intimate story and uh, feel the joy that exists by the time you exit that theater. It is a, is a wonder of a film. So that is of an age for me. I wanted to quickly ask you, uh, without spoiling it, because I know that there is a thing that switches up in the movie, but I know that the first chunk of the movie primarily takes place almost entirely in the car between uh, Cole and Adam. And I'm wondering for you, was there any point in the movie where you felt that these characters were just kind of sitting with themselves, like the movie wasn't taking full advantage to explore their deeper desires or their deeper you know, concerns? Or did you really feel gripped by that part of the movie as pertaining to the rest of what it would go for? You know, in moments where you kind of want them to just drop this tension and just say, hey, you know, I feel like you're into me. Are you into me? Or you just want these truths to kind of be bursting out of them. You, you do experience what you say. They sit with themselves and they really ask themselves the question of like, okay, is this the is this the time where I make it known that I'm into this person? Is this the time where I take the action further? And there's so much hesitation. There's so much, as I say, tension that exists that can only speak to the truth of what it was like to be um to have this sort of attraction back then and one shot in particular that i really like is they do a great job of showing 
how Cole will like sneak glances at Adam. And they, it's so neat the way, uh, whether it's Stolevsky's direction or as I mentioned earlier, it's the camera work. This film just does a lot to tell the story that it's trying to and it, it comes across as successful. So that's why it's such a big win for me. We, this actually wasn't on our, you know, breaking the fourth wall. This actually wasn't on our coverage list for today's episode. Then I went out and I watched it and I said, damn, Brandon, hey, I need to pitch something to you because I, I want to, be able to speak to this film because I thought that it was great. Well, it's funny because you're supposed to talk about uh, Operation Fortune, which is Guy Ritchie's new movie uh, that we might get to either next week or up on Ketchup. And then you brought this up to me and I was kind of mad because my theater was showing it and I had a couple days span where I could have gone to see it. And I was like, I'll catch it eventually. You brought it up and I was like, it's definitely playing at this one, right? No, like it's just kind of been going here and there in theater. So I guess if you have a chance nearby in your local theater, go see it. We are moving on to a story involving two men as well, but this time in a boxing ring. So different kind of range that you're putting on the finger. That's the weakest segue I could think of. Brandon, <laughs> over to you for Creed 3. All right. So Creed 3, uh, the Creed franchise is back in theaters after four years. Uh, Creed 2 was a couple of years ago, starting with the first Creed movie in 2015. This is Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut. Congratulations, man. Um, and actually definitely congratulations because there's a lot to be said about this. Um, Keenan Kugler, who is Ryan Kugler's younger brother, co-wrote the script alongside a uh, Zach Balin, who if any of you saw, uh, King Richard, which of course won Will Smith his Oscar, he wrote that. Um, Ryan Kugler is on this as a producer, as is Sylvester Stallone, who this is actually the first Rocky movie not to feature, uh, Rocky in any particular capacity. And that's all I'll say about that. We start off in 2002. Uh, we see a young version of Adonis Creed and his young friend, uh, Damien. Basically, there's a lot of stuff that goes down, but TLDR, something happens at a convenience store. Uh, Donnie gets away. Damien goes to jail. And that's kind of that. We then fast forward to 2017. Uh, Donnie has won a rematch up against uh, Pretty Ricky Conlon, a.k.a. his rival from the first movie, who, side note, I'm so happy they keep bringing back these fighters from previous movies, even though they never really got that much character. But they allow the world to feel more fleshed out and really tuned into the Creed universe side of things and not just a Rocky legacy sequel thing. Uh, Ricky is once again played by Tony Ballou. You also see Florian Montuno back as uh, Victor Drago in a couple of scenes. So he's back from uh, Creed 2 as well. Uh, basically, Donnie wins the fight. He goes home with uh, Tessa Thompson, his wife, his new daughter, uh, Amara, played by Myla K Davis Kent. And then the movie really picks up a couple of years later. Uh, which, if you do the math correctly, is technically 2020, but they never established the pandemic. So it's one of those movies where 2020 is existing, but not the pandemic that we know. Whatever. It's it's not important. Uh, Donnie is a dad. Um, Tessa Thompson's Bianca is working on music, but her hearing loss is slowly progressing worse. So uh, it's been up left up to Donnie to not only take over the uh, local gym alongside Wood Harris's Little Duke, but also take care of his daughter, who is also born deaf. So now he has a family that is much more, has much more medically handicapped, that needs more needs. He has this gorgeous house up in the Hollywood Hills that he's taking care of. And then one day he's leaving the gym and Damien pops up, now played by King the Conqueror himself, Jonathan Majors, um, who basically pops up and is like, hey, I've been in jail the last 18 years for that stuff that happened years ago. I just got out. I was a prized amateur fighter way back in the day. I'm really vying for a title shot. I need your help with this. And Donnie, despite everyone telling him otherwise, gives him a shot. And that leads to the events of the film where you start to see Damien's really unhinged personality that was formed a lot in prison really uh, expedite itself in its worst ways. But more than that, you see Donnie really grow as a man and have to kind of accept uh, his past shortcomings, there are some wonderful scenes between him and Felicia Rashad, who is back as his adoptive mother, Marianne Creed. And again, Jordan is in the director's chair for this time around, so all this is on his shoulders. Suffice to say, it really works. And that is my TLDR of this movie. I really like this. For context, I think the first Creed movie is maybe the best legacy sequel of all time. Uh, I haven't seen The Color of Money and that whole thing, so I'm not really sure to uh, quit that to that. But Creed... What Ryan Coogler did with that movie is so stupendously electric and energized and just quick-witted and deep and just all these amazing things. And Creed 2 is a really uh, engaging movie as well. I found Creed 3 to be more on the level of Creed 2, where it doesn't have that slightest of special somethings that takes it over the wall. But if you are willing to engage with it purely as exciting entertainment with really great heart that knows what it is, it delivers in spades. Like, 
Jordan, we already knew what this character, you know, he's been playing it for nearly a decade. Um, and he really gets to tap into a lot of Donnie's deepest concerns and deepest demons in his closet. Uh, there's a lot of great scenes where it's exploring a lot of essentially, yes, masculinity, but specifically black masculinity and how that is contrasted between him and Damien, where Damien as a person has been basically locked away from everyone and everything for, you know, almost two decades. And it's kind of been with himself, you know, uh, abiding by his worst tendencies. Whereas Donnie has been given really a lot of opportunities to, uh, to really expose himself to better ideas and better things. But he's kind of held a lot of himself back. And it's, it's Damien who makes, uh, it's Damien's presence that feels like a physical reminder of everything that Donnie doesn't want to acknowledge. So to anyone who is saying, you know, why do we need to create a third Creed movie, especially without Stallone? His presence is missed in some parts. There are a few parts where I really did feel like Rocky was missing, but as a whole, it really is a reflection of Donnie really coming into his own beyond any of the other movies. And that is what I can give Jordan the most credit for. You've probably heard a lot of interviews about him and his anime influences. If you're any fan of Naruto or Dragon Ball Z or My Hero Academia, or you've at least seen the styles of those, there are a couple moments that will have you salivating in this movie, particularly one moment in the final fight that is maybe the ballsiest choice of anything in the, uh, in the Creed franchise thus far. Like, he really tries to go there, and I really appreciate that. Um, and obviously, like, there's the training montages, the needle drops, the things you've grown accustomed to in the Rocky and Creed movies. But overall, it is just this really powerful examination of two men who at one time were completely cut from the exact same cloth. And what happens when two decades removed from them, when one is given so many chances and so many opportunities, and one who is just trying with pure unadulterated rage and presence and firepower to get back to the top, what happens when they collide? And it really is profoundly interesting and exciting and electric. I cannot wait to see what Jordan does later on. And I, I was just really impressed that three movies in this movie that no one seemed to have wanted is still finding ways to one up itself and really get the audience on board. So yeah, I really like this. It amazes me that on its third entry, it provides the space for Jordan to step in as director. I find that tremendous about this film. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to it for this week's episode. But I do have a question, Brandon, and that is how do you feel about Kang the Conqueror entering the Creed universe? If you watch this in Ant-Man, not back to back, but within the same period of time as you know, I was able to, you see two completely different sides of Jonathan Majors. You see the side of him who is grandiose and operatic and has just the swell of the multiverse behind him in Ant-Man. And then you see someone objectively smaller who is trying everything to kind of, you know, punch it. We're going to talk about Cocaine Bear later, but the idea of like raising yourself up to make yourself feel bigger and more intimidating. And that's almost Damien in this entire movie. He's constantly either working out or giving like a pose or something with his face. And it's it's the nuances between those two performances that have really determined Majors as like, oh, he's not just a fantastic actor, he's a chameleon. He's someone who can really diversify his entire portfolio on a whim. The scenes between him and Michael B. Jordan, who they've kind of gone on record to be like, oh yeah, we're the new De Niro and Pacino. And I'm like, you're not not that. Like you have the same kind of just bounciness off of one another. So yeah, just watching those two and those two performances in between one another is really fascinating. And when you speak about his anime influences, that's something that I can't wait to experience when I finally check out this film. Uh, along with its... Uh predecessor i i actually need to step in and step in and do a double feature do creed 2 and creed 3 do you see a future for the franchise or do this provide you a nice wrap-up for the creed character if it wrapped here it would be a very good ending um in that in the same way that creed 2 i believe is the perfect ending for rocky as a character which is why i'm not so sad for him not being here um but i think this as a movie really it sets up the whole creed family as really this reigning dynasty of boxing and like They've grown from, you know, these scattered characters to a dynasty of boxing. And I think that can really, that can set something up for later on. Like this, this franchise surprised me over and over again. But if this is where it ended, I would be very, especially considering the final scene that I think is really genuinely wonderful. I think that whole idea has been taken to its conclusion, but I would be happy to see a fourth. And Jordan has said he wants to do a fourth. I was going to make the joke of, you know, this is the third entry in Creed. And you're like, yeah, it does, you know, 
do that job well of tell of telling this final mark and you'd be happy if it ended here well some people said that about like the second alien film and now we're on the ninth <laughs> film in the franchise so let's see if they follow suit but um the trend of the industry seems to be nah if there if there are people coming out in waves for creed you best believe there's going to be creed 4 creed 5 creed um then the, the movie adonis creed is going to come out then it's going to be the next generation of boxers now being influenced by adonis creed and then he's going to step out on that movie sequel the film's going to the industry's going to repeat itself uh brandon final rating for the creed 3 i want to give it higher than creed 2 because i gave that movie an eight and a half i think i'm still going to stick with eight and a half because at the end of the day you can still tell there are there are adding choices they're a bit wonky there's some stuff with damien that i wish they went a bit deeper into that they kind of try a bit too late to do and you can also tell that jordan as a director this is his first film like there's a lot of stuff there that can get away from him a little bit but when he's firing all cylinders my god like for his first film it's really impressive and again you go to see this for the performances of jordan and majors and frankly thompson and uh felicia rashad as well who are really the heart and soul of a lot of this movie you go to see it as a creed fan for expanding that world and really tying it all together you go to see it for the fights and oh my god the fights do incredibly deliver um kramer morgenthau actually comes back to do cinematography from the second one and there's really, again, that electricity. I keep saying that again, but it is an electric movie that just jolts through you. And really, if you are willing to embrace it beyond just the fact that it is a Rocky Legacy sequel and just embrace it on its own terms, it really is something special. Uh, it's playing in theaters right now. Go see this in the theater. Like, have a great time. It's really something. And with that being said, we are on to our final new release for this week. Future Me, I hope this is one of the shorter episodes you get to edit because I feel like you've been going through this pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, this is probably where things are going to take a whole turn. Because in the uh, 1980s, there was a bear, and it ate some cocaine, and then it died. But Elizabeth Banks is coming back and saying, what if that bear, what if it lived and became a new B-movie horror icon in Cocaine Bear? The newest uh, blockbuster, I guess you can call it, this theaters right now, because it's made some money. Uh, Noah, tell the people what, what this version of the Cocaine Bear mythology is and how he lives in our hearts. Yeah, let's talk about Elizabeth Banks' Cocaine Bear. For one, when the project was announced with Banks attached to direct, I thought, okay, you know, this is a wild project to kind of pitch yourself and, sorry, attach yourself to. But what the hell? I'm, if you're firing on all cylinders, I'm here for it. Then that trailer dropped and you got the impression that this was going to be campy as hell. It was not going to let up on the gore. It does have an R rating. Um, it has familiar cast, but I would say um, some unfamiliar faces as well, which I was delighted to see. That being said, let's talk about what really happened. Let's talk about what happened in the film. So the way the story goes is back in the 80s, there was a black bear who got into some cocaine that was dropped from a plane in Georgia, okay, in the foresty parts of Georgia, Georgia, where a hunter actually, you know, the story was developed in pieces. So at first there was a hunter who was discovering a bear in an opening in, in the forest after he was hunting some, after he was trailing some deer and realizing that the bear was dead. He approached it and started observing the body and realizing that this bear was so young, it couldn't have died from national, natural causes, but something killed it. And then, you know, insert an old man who found, you know, uh, a bag of coke insert stories of the plane that had dropped the coke intercepting like a radio transmission that they were about to be followed hence them leaping from their plane with these duffel bags of coke insert one of the pilots actually having their chute fail upon opening and so they actually opened their reserve chute but it did not reach the point of inflation to start to allow for a safe landing. So he had severe injuries upon landing, upon crash landing and died shortly after impact. So there's a lot of morbid details when it comes to this story, when you're looking at the reality of it. Um, but it does pitch this, pitch this idea that there was a bear who got into heaping loads of cocaine. Now Elizabeth Banks steps in and says, actually, let's turn this foresty Georgia area into Camp Crystal Lake and Cocaine Bear is Jason and he is not afraid to just maul these camp goers, these, uh, these weirdos to, to no end. So the cast of characters who actually encounter the Cocaine Bear here in the, uh, national, you know, uh, park site of Chattahoochee, 
Carrie Russell starring as Sari. Sari is a mother to a young girl who has decided to ditch school for the day named Dee Dee, played by Brooklyn Prince, who actually ventures off with her friend Henry. I'm not, I can't keep saying names, <laughs> who ends up skipping off into the forest with Henry because they decide to play a uh, hooky for the day and just go enjoy themselves in this park site. Oh, wait, they come across cocaine. Insert Detective Bob, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who's actually amazing in this. We'll probably get to it. I believe he gets a tip that the person he is pursuing or this detail just brings him to uh, the Chattahoochee, you know, forest reserve where they all are, the park site. And so there... I was going to say, they also kind of make a joke of just like, you don't have jurisdiction here? And he's just like, I absolutely do. He just appears and he has his gun on his hip and he is looking for, you know, what there is to find out there. He does stumble upon some cocaine, um, you know, insert story thread C, right? Because there is just so many going on here. Uh, we also have a, a pairing of two best friends in Eddie and David. Eddie is played by, uh, you may remember him from Han Solo, Hail Caesar, other things, Alden Ehrenreich. And David is played by O'Shea Jackson Jr. The two of them are actually indebted to David's business partner, I would say. It just so happens that that is also Eddie's father. Ray Liotta steps in as the character Sid. They actually need to acquire this cocaine that has been dropped off in the forest because Sid is in some deep trouble. And we know when it comes to deep trouble and drugs and all these gangs, if they don't come after me, they're going to come after the kids They come after the kids, kids. So honestly, so many characters involved here. I still have yet to mention a couple others. For example, the Parks Ranger, who is uh, Margot Martindale, plays Ranger Liz. She's amazing. Uh, but there are so many wild characters here that really you could play the game of who's going to outlast who. And you are kind of under the impression that the mom may make it till the end. But based off its opening, I think everyone's fair game, right? Cocaine Bear opens with two hikers going on their loving, like honeymoon type of hike, going to see the sights. And they're talking about future plans, what they're going to name their baby, only to be mauled by this bear that has already ingested the cocaine. And then we have this... I say like kind of longer than needed uh, exposition for all of our characters. You're already starting the film with a bear that is already uh, cuckoo and crazy. And so our kill count is already at two question mark. But me and Brandon can start a discussion now and talk about where the story takes its beats. Uh, I think some more good is explored here than bad, but definitely opinions to be shared. So Brandon entering this film do you think that it's opening, that it's that it's middle parts? Did you think that you were getting the film that was marketed to you in the trailers? Uh, really quick, we should quickly mention Elizabeth Banks is directing this, but it's also Phil Lord and Chris Miller produced. So that 21 Jump Street style is very much present throughout the movie, if you liked all of that. Um, coming into the movie, yeah, I remember when the trailer dropped, and I don't think we discussed it on the show, but we definitely discussed it off show where it was just, okay. Why, why Elizabeth Banks? Why this story? Why this cast? Why this approach? Why? And yeah, a lot of the movie kind of addresses those and kind of just says, go with it. Um, for context, I didn't love Pitch Perfect 2, which was, of course, uh, Banks' directorial debut. Hey, speaking of, you know, actors who directed sequels for their first movies, uh, Elizabeth Banks. Um, but then I also, I like the Charlie's Angels reboot more than most people did. I have a fair amount of fun with it. So I was very curious to see her tackle to go from something like this fun, campy spy adventure to this, which looked borderline horror, but just fun enough for someone like me to get attached to it. Um, and I will say this, what you see on the box is what you get. And I had fun with it. I like the characters. I like the tone. I like the approach to it. Um, and as you mentioned, it's a movie that starts off pretty brutal as is. Um, you talk about the two hikers that get killed, uh, and to see characters like that first introduced who are so lovely and warm and then viciously get mauled by this bear, it immediately sets you on the tone of, okay, no one is safe. But by the end of the movie, there is this semblance of like the people who should die do die. And you mentioned the exposition right afterwards. I feel like that gives us our best and pretty much only glimpse into who these characters really truly are until they are at their most desperate and fearful. And so I like that. But I also agree it's way too long and it kind of is exemplary of the movie's bigger issues that prohibit me from going, this is fantastic and everyone else should see it too. This is good and I appreciate it. You know, I think I made the mistake of providing you a synopsis that involved way too many characters. Because let me tell you, the story, except, except the title... Because it just has too many characters. Well, I was going to say, the movie's title is Cocaine Bear and the synopsis is a bear gets into cocaine and goes on a rampage on those 
around its national park. Like it ventures into a national park and, and ends up mauling, uh, threatening and like hostaging. (laughs) It's just so many different things that it does, but it just wrecks havoc on all these people who happen to be in the same area. The bear has a level of human intelligence to it is what I think you're trying to get across. I'm okay with the bear being the main character. And the fact that it's on cocaine is what kind of drives the story and, and like pushes its beats. But the problem with me watching it was like, okay, get back to the bear now. Like, I really think that there are two unnecessary characters in here because I did find myself entertained and even, um, rooting for the majority of them, save for, unfortunately, Aaron Reich and Russell's characters. I don't know. Their purpose there was really to be the marks of, I'm here for my family and family above all. And like family love will prevail. I'm not really sure, but um putting Sari as a character in there looking for her daughter, I thought that it was going to make the, oh, well, are we talking about spoilers? I don't know. But I just wanted to see a bold choice there. And unfortunately, we didn't get to see something like that. That's okay. Hey, I do want to say that there are still great comedic performances with the other characters, the detective in particular. I was having a hoot looking at <laughs> Detective Bob. There's like a side beat of him adopting this. Um, is it a Carrie Russ? Is it a, no, I don't know what, why did I just say her name? Is it a, uh, <laughs> her name kind of sounds like a dog. Um, no, no offense, but what is the dog that he gets? <laughs> oh, um, no, I, I should know this, but. You're right, the floofy awards dog or whatever. Yes, it is. the one that when it walks, like it looks like a snuffleupagus, but like a very mini one covered the in white. The running joke is that from the start, he's like, I wanted like a proper attack dog. But like as he's going through this journey, he's like, I really miss my floofy dog. He finds himself missing this dog, which has nothing to do with the cocaine bear story. It has but nothing I to love, do with it. I love that they've kept that in. Um, you know, you got fingers being blown off. You got like decapitated heads, um, severed limbs. This movie goes for it, man. That's another note for me is that at least for the killing portion, there was not a kill that I thought, Oh, that was lame. Like that was just too easy. They they kill one person off screen, which I thought was lame, but it was well balanced with all of the killing you got to see on screen and like all the creative ways that whether the bear kills, (laughs) whether the bear has victims or the hilarity of these characters and their actions bring about the deaths of others. And that was also just really entertaining to see. You mentioned the cast of characters. I like a lot of them. Um, I like Carrie Russell and Brooklyn Prince, who plays the daughter, which did you see the Florida Project? Why does that sound like an alien movie? Oh, I'm thinking about Adam Project. No, I have not seen that. That was with uh, Willem Dafoe and like the kids at the hotel. Fantastic movie. And I'm so happy to see her get more work. Like maybe not like this, but I'm glad to see her in this. And I like seeing her and uh, Christian Convery as uh, Henry because their kids feel really legitimate. They don't feel like kids in a movie. They just feel like kids who will like go off in this and, you know, go do what they want and like see bags of drugs and be like, yeah, and the in the fever pitch of drug awareness of the 80s, of course they're going to try it. Like, kids are curious people, and they're just going to do it. And they're just going to do as much as can fit on a Swiss Army knife's little knife blade and just completely munch on yes. it. Like, that was a that was a scene in the film that got everybody in, in my theater laughing. And that's another joyous detail for this film, is if you go see it with a crowd, like, the laughter around you really sparks a lot of joy um, and enjoyment that you can feel from this movie. And I don't think this is a spoiler, but like Sari is a nurse. So when she eventually does find the kids, there is a running joke of how long they have until she finds out. And let's just say it's not long. And I think it's great. The kids are written in a way that they just, as you say, they feel real. They're not given these, this dramatic, like uh, immense pedestal for them to. They're not given halos. It's not like, oh God, we're the children and there's a monster on the loose. It's like, we're kids and we're characters in a movie where there's a monster on the loose. Yes. Uh, I love what they do with Henry up in the tree when he's just like totally under the impression that he's safe, not even thinking that bears can climb trees only for another character to like climb one up right beside him. And uh, I really, I want a couple scenes in this movie. If I could add just like, you know, for the reshoot, this is what we would do. You put costumed actor who's always played these monsters. We can even take like, you know, uh, the one who plays Michael Myers and be like, put on a bear suit and give me like bear stalking one of the kids so slowly because th- they're a lot of this film isn't practical. Uh, I forgive it for that. You know, I don't think that that's uh, a detriment to its, its quality, but there is, I think there were p- pieces where that could have been, very you that could have been very essential could have been very nice 
you mentioned the tree thing. That's the one time where I like Jesse Tyler Ferguson in this, and I like him very much. I just don't like care for him in this. Um, but Margot Martindale is a freaking star. We knew this, but we knew she's fantastic. But like, she's so good in this, and like every line out of her mouth is just freaking gold. And then the ambulance scene. I won't say much beyond that, but the ambulance scene with her and of all people, Scott Sice, who <laughs> more heavy into TikTok, is the angry retail explainer guy who pops up as one of the EMTs gold i wanted five more minutes of that and when it ends it's easily the most viscerally entertaining portion of the entire movie i thought that i had seen scott sice before he has one of those faces that just i thought i remembered him from another comedic performance i don't know if he's he's probably has acted in a bunch of stuff i just know him from his tiktoks and then you speak on uh martindale oh my goodness this movie gives her so much and she just runs with it and i really love what they've done with her character she could have been a I'm sorry she could have been a better lead to follow like i want to know what her what her feelings are you start the movie with her preparing yourself for this kind of date with uh the character you mentioned only to be pissed that now she has to escort this woman looking for her damn kids who like skip school she doesn't even the woman doesn't even want to take the scenic route either she wants to take the fastest route there um to now being the only one armed up against this bear she's a terrible shot she's a scene stealer you know and everything that she's in you're focused on her yeah and then you know there's also the sidetrack characters where like it's mostly the drug dealer stuff that is like you say not as interesting like o'shea jackson jr and alden Ehrenreich have okay chemistry i never felt their lines were that great beyond the line that you see in the trailer of alden Ehrenreich going the bear pause did cocaine like that's a great line um and then like ray liotta is just kind of the slightly well-meaning but kind of a dickwad great-grandfather whatever kind of figure um and then you know the the kind of hooligan kids who O'Shea Jackson gets into a fight with they're fine but they, they don't they aren't really given characters it's a lot of like hit and miss in this movie where if you identify with just the pure tenets of those characters you're going to be completely enthralled in the story and if you're not you're just waiting for the bear to come back as you say and i found more to enjoy from the actual non-bear characters final remarks from you before we get into our ratings I really like the soundtrack in this. It's Mark Mothersbaugh doing it. It's full-blown, like, 80s synth pop. It's apparently, as he has put in an interview, is, like, reused Devo material, which I think is really interesting considering his body of work. Um, Of course, Mark Mothersbaugh is in Devo, so it makes sense. But, like, the way he utilizes it all to make kind of the woods feel bigger than they are and for the more tense moments to feel more tense than they are, it's a really weird approach, but it really worked for me on a certain level. And let's just say... There is a certain Depeche Mode song that is used, and it's one of the best needle drops I've seen all year. So, yeah. I think that for myself, Cocaine Bear, moving on to ratings, it's going to be, you know, I gave my last film of an age, big old mighty praise, recommending you go to the theaters. Run there, actually. Uh, But for Cocaine Bear, I think I'm going to give that sort of like minor. I think that I did enjoy this film, and it has a wonderful premise that it executes only so well. And so I was more of a watcher who was waiting for the bear to come back because I needed these these kills to come Um over what's this how what's this scooby-doo mystery of how we can find the daughter in the woods oh she dropped paint oh she dropped her sweater oh look at that herpy derp derp um you have that many characters not every one of them needs the backstory that was provided we kind of just need to know why are they there and you know what where is their involvement with the bear because that's the story that this movie is telling uh and when it gets to those beats it does it well so uh, this is going to be probably for me i'll probably give this a six out of ten And I am going to go slightly higher than you, because like I said, if you care about the characters more as a whole, you're going to enjoy the whole of the movie more. And I did. So I'm giving this a seven out of ten. Again, the the soundtrack bops, the characters are interesting enough, but it is the bear who is the star of this movie. And if you can get into the kills and the action and the tension, which credit to Elizabeth Banks, she goes for broke on this. And I really respect that. And I I don't know if I'd want to see her lean more into like B-movie horror territory, but it's clearly something that she has some sort of passion and respect for. So I'd, like, I'd be curious to see what she could do more with this. I know there's some speculation about whether or not there's going to be a sequel. Oh, Maybe. dude, they're going to do it. They're going to well, do it. It's going to be like cocaine, mama bear, baby bear, older brother bear. Who the hell knows? But you know it. Cocaine bear too. Too coke, too bear. Cocaine bear. By the time we get to episode 46, I'm bound to have a pun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um, holding you to that. Um, but yeah, it's it's really fun. And re- when I said Creed 3 you should see in theaters, you need to see Cocaine Bear in theaters. I think the only way you can properly enjoy this is with a huge crowd hooting and hollering and tensing, much like a movie like Jackass Forever is, where it's not the greatest movie in the world. It's not going to you know redefine your expectations of cinema by any means. But in a big crowd, it gets the job done of, you know, 
just getting those visceral emotions out of you. It is still playing in theaters as far as we're taping this. Um, I'm not sure the studio who it is, so it might be on Netflix at some point um, or VOD streaming. But yes, if you can get around to it, absolutely. But please see this in like a packed midnight house if you can, because it is really fun when it wants to be. And that'll do it for episode 45 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in uh, before this time where both Noah and I take some well-deserved vacation for the next couple of days, although it won't matter to you because our scheduling is complete nonsense right now. But listen, while we've got you here, uh, Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, TikTok, at Plot Devices Podcast, those are the social medias, and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS Feed. Just search Plot Devices and leave us a review and rating if you can. It does help boost the algorithm, uh, gets to more audiences that maybe aren't just the, you know, dozens of so of you who are listening right now, but we do appreciate all of you for every time that you give us a chance and more content is on the way very soon. I want to thank my co-host as usual, Noah Guzman. Noah, thank you so much again for joining me as always. What are you enjoying in your life right now and where can people find you online? I'm enjoying all things SZA and Omar Apollo, baby. I'm actually on my way out of state to go enjoy their concert this week, the week of the recording. And in addition to that, I'm picking up on reading again. So this most recent pickup is going to be Audition. And I wish I had it in front of me so I could quote the author, but unfortunately I don't. Uh, horror fans out there, I'm sure you've seen or heard of the movie Audition and its sheer brutality. Well, I've learned that it's actually an adapted work. So I'm excited to go through and experience that book firsthand and then move on to the film as I have not seen it. So busying my with that with this as well as marvel snap baby brandon i don't know how you feel about mobile gaming they're paying me to say these words and it is actually <laughs> i looked at my screen time usage and i'm i'm absolutely ashamed that i'm going to be sharing this but i looked at my screen time for like the week of i think it was like the second week of february or something like that and my highest use app was marvel snap and how many hours for that week that i use it brandon I used it for 14 hours that week. Oh. And okay. I, it's like, I'm not a big scroller. Like, I'm not big on Instagram or Twitter. I'll post things here and there. But when I read that, I was like, okay, Noah, it's time to do a check-in. Let's let's figure out why. Like, why are we on Marvel Snap this much? It's because it's a damn good game, man. So that's all. I will me. say, in terms of reading, will you be picking up the Barry Giant about 10 years in advance? Honestly, yes. Yes. If I know that GDT is about to push that out, then baby. I'm on board. Barry Giant. I really hope, though, that it does have those, the tones that we feel are coming in the film, I want to experience in the book. You want to cry and feel bad. Absolutely. Fair enough. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Follow my band at CableBox underscore music. That's CableBox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. We got gigs and music coming out very soon. Our debut single, Wish, is out on all streaming platforms if you want to check it out. And of course, all of those will be down in the description of all versions of the podcast if you so choose to check those out. So for that being said, for episode 45 of Plot Devices, my name is Brandon. That has been Noah Guzman. We're here celebrating numbers on this show. And we'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>